Welcome, everybody, to Dead Talk Live. And don't fear, we actually do have a guest with us tonight. Daniel Ferrans is joining us. But due to technical uh, difficulties, he is joining us by audio. Daniel, thank you for being on our show. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing well, John. Thanks so much for having me. And I will just have to correct you. It's Farron. 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 Farron's. Yeah, people, people, you know what? I get that all the time. No. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I res- I res- no, you're fine. I respond to both. <laughs> <laughs> so, Daniel, uh, you have this very interesting project coming up. The Ted Bundy, American Boogeyman. You produced it, wrote it, directed it. Uh, my first question to you is... When is this thing going to be released uh, for us, the audience, to be able to watch it? In fact, it releases this Friday, September 3rd, which actually happens to be my birthday. So that was kind of like a nice kind of, you know, synchronicity that I worked out that way. Happy birthday. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Not for that reason, but it was just kind of a nice, you know, surprise that they... Nice birthday, out on my birthday present. Yeah, right, yeah. right. So, um, but that all just kind of happened because that's the way things happen to to work out. Uh, but yeah, it'll be available on all the major streaming platforms, uh, VOD, uh, and also DVD on Friday the third. So uh, I wish it was thirteenth, but it is the third. <laughs> um, but uh, that being said, yeah. So that's that's where people can see it. I think you know. Um, we also actually had a, a a very like we had a kind of like a one night sneak preview of the movie through Fathom Events that was a couple weeks ago, so it was great to be able to see it at least the one time on the big screen. Yes, but yes. you know it's a movie that I think you know can be really enjoyed at home and, um, well, you know, and it's it's a scary good time. I think I'm looking forward to it now. Ted Bundy, uh, you know, in the list of famous American serial killers. I think, Mm -hmm. and this is my opinion, he is the scariest of the bunch. Not because Mm -hmm. of who he targeted, not because Mm -hmm. of the methods that he used to kill these women. What, in my mind, made him so damn scary was how charming, normal, and charismatic this man was. How do you feel about that? You know, I, I agree with, I would say I agree with most of what you said. I think that was what was so terrifying was that he kind of blended in, you know, he could just, you know, he was one of us, so to speak, um, just looked like a normal guy. I, you know, I think that some people now kind of criticize, you know, people who try to glamorize Bundy or, to, you know, cast good looking men in the role. Cause a lot of people are kind of this backlash again. And well, he wasn't really that good looking in real life. And I can't believe these women would have fallen for him. Mm-hmm. I think what, what people miss the point, though, is that he just looked average. Normal. He looked accessible. He looked like somebody who, and again, like the, the way he knew how to manipulate, you know, by, you know, of course, these have become like horror movie tropes now. Like we've seen it in like Silence of the Lambs mm-hmm. and so many other movies where the killer puts on a, a cast or yeah. he's, you know, walking around with crutches, trying to kind of prey on the sympathy of the woman or the victim that he's targeting. And in the case of Bundy, it was all women. Um but yeah, that's what was so scary about him is that he was using his ability to manipulate, um, to, to prey on the sensitivity and the kindness, mm-hmm. honestly, of, of these victims that were just honestly minding their business and trying to be nice to a stranger. Yeah. And unfortunately, yeah. it cost them their lives. And I think that's what it is so frightening and insidious about Ted Bundy. And I think it's why we still are so interested in him. I think we're endlessly fascinated by evil but i think bundy 
personified evil, especially in the 1970s. I don't know how old you are, but I was a child back yeah. then. And I do yeah. remember stories on the nightly news, especially when his trial was so sensational. And, you know, the Bundy barbecues that people were having the day that he was executed. Yeah. And it's, it was all just very disturbing. And it was a, kind of a scary time to be a kid. It is. You it know, is. Uh, so, yeah. So those are the, yeah, I do agree with you, though. He was, he used his his affability and his approachability to, you know, to, to murder. And yeah, to, to let to his way women. to, Absolutely. Yeah, into these women. It's like the web that he would weave to try to um, ingratiate himself, you know. Um, and again, just preying on the good nature of these girls. That's what was so scary about it. Exactly. And we all know that he targeted college-aged women uh, primarily. Right. Now, yep. when you were writing this, um, how much of a deep dive into the research beyond the the numerous documentaries that are available for everybody to watch, did you try to go any other different route and try to get access to research information that was is not easily uh, accessible to everybody else. Uh, how you know, I, how deep yeah. did you dive into the research? I mean, all of it is like no matter what, it's like too deep. You know, like the minute you kind of go down that rabbit hole, you sort of get swallowed up by it, and it's really disturbing. You know, like I remember many nights, you know, working late on this, and and just you know every creak of the house, you know, <laughs> trying to jump. I mean, what people, few people think probably unless you really know me. I'm kind of like the world's biggest chicken, you know, I'm, I'm like afraid of everything. So um, people were like, well, you make these terrifying movies and these disturbing subjects. And I said, yeah, because all of that's the shit that keeps me up at night. Exactly. You know, it's the stuff that makes me afraid to sometimes, you know, face the world. I think we're all kind of like collectively in a place where we're all like kind of living in fear right now mm -hmm. against an invisible enemy in a weird way. Like Bundy was that, you know, mm -hmm. he was the invisible terror. You know, now, you know, if somebody wants to murder you, they'll just pull a, a machine gun out in a, in a parking lot and, and just shoot everybody mm -hmm. or go into a high school. And, you know, like the things that we've seen in our society since Ted Bundy's of the world have gone into a place that's almost unthinkable mm -hmm. in the way that it's just so brazen and open and there's no there's there's nothing hidden about the enemy they're right in your face no, and they're going to kill you you know and i just feel like that's like ted bundy was almost like a warning of what's to come yeah and i think that that's kind of what struck me about all of it and also um but in terms going back to your question about the research yeah i i absolutely visited you know some of the, the really well done documentaries including the one that um Joe Berlinger made for Netflix a couple years ago. I saw that um, one. On the Ted Bundy tapes where mm -hmm. you really got to hear, you know, the kind of psychology, the psychosis of Ted Bundy and the and the malignant narcissism of this man, you know, kind of all put out on these tapes. And, you know, so there were elements from those. Uh, there was a great book that was written um, by um, best-selling, you know, crime author. This is back in the day, from the 80s, I believe this book was written, um, called The Stranger Beside Me, mm -hmm. Anne Rule. Uh, Anne Rule, weirdly enough, she knew Ted Bundy. She worked with him mm. um, when they were both working at a, believe it or not, a suicide prevention hotline. Wow. The fact that this monster would counsel people. And, you know, interestingly, some, some of the things that I got out of her book was that she believes that in retrospect. Now, that's the other thing about Anne Rule was that she's like, you know, I would have trusted him with my children. Jeez. And she said that, you know, he was so 
affable and, and kind of always concerned. She's like, she used to walk me to my car at night to make sure I got there safely. Wow. The same man who was approaching women walking to their cars at night and doing these horrific things to them. Like, you know, there was a trigger or there was a, like a switch in him. And I think that he had a specific type victim that he targeted and there's a whole bunch of different theories as to why that was including that there was a, a woman who had jilted him when he was in college and the, the victims bore some resemblance to this woman i don't know if that's completely true yeah but it's an, it's a theory but yeah so i think the thing with ted bundy is that there's so many facets to this bizarre story and this bizarre man that it, it's almost like each movie each documentary has takes a different point of view on it yeah. you know like like the Berlinger, he made the, obviously the, 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 the movie that was, um, you know, pretty well received a couple of years ago that accompanied the Bundy tapes documentary, mm-hmm. which was called extremely wicked, shockingly evil and vile. It's like the longest title ever. Uh, the one with Zach Efron, that's easier way to say it, yeah. but, um, you know, his point of view on it was, you know, was Ted Bundy insane or was he, was he this kind of like, he would snap in and out of these personalities and, my my thought on it is was he was absolutely insane and he was you know one of like you were saying at the beginning of the show like just one of the most terrifying yeah uh, figures and but I, I felt like that movie sort of played it a little bit middle of the road and I'm not criticizing the movie I think there was a lot about that that was very well done and I think Zac Efron played a, a really effective Ted Bundy but you know for me the way that I approached this movie the one that I I, I made and that's releasing this week is that Bundy was just this monster. He was this American boogeyman, if you will, this exactly. phantom that was stalking and murdering people for almost you know no reason. Mm-hmm. And I think the lack of humanity is really what I focused on. And, and the other part of the story is really, that I felt like had never really been addressed in some of these other films was just the, the difficulty faced by law enforcement and what it was like in those days to track a killer like him who was clever, who did know how to dodge the police, who was using the new highway interstate system to kind of throw them off his trail. And picked victims and, at random. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And 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 them trying to find a pattern. And there was, you know, there's a line in the movie where um, Kathleen McChesney, who the movie is based on and in some ways loosely based on her, um, she was this young rookie police detective out of the Seattle Sheriff's Department. She played by Holland Road in our film. She does a great job. Um, But she was just this young, you know, trying to make her way in a very male-dominated profession at the time and trying to just put on this task force. And in fact, the, the upper echelon in the department was like, well, we just brought her in to soften up the witnesses. They didn't believe in her mm. abilities. Mm-hmm. It was like the sexism she encountered. Oh, yeah. So I wanted, to, I wanted the movie to be about that. You know, it's a woman trying to make her way in a very male-dominated profession. And yet she kind of understood the psychology of what was going on here. She really looked at the patterns and the victims and um, kind of really tried to, to delve into the thought process of this killer in order to try to track him. And then just the, the obstacles, like there was no computer mm-hmm. in the entire police department they had one for the payroll department yeah. that was all they had yeah so in order to track this vw that he you know this beetle that he was driving around in they knew that much um after he committed these murders at lake sammamish um it was like forty thousand beetles you know it was a very popular car yeah. back in those days <laughs> you know and by hand by one by one by one on little index cards they had to go through these you know 
the specifics, the owners of these cars, there was no database. There was no, no DNA, DNA yeah. no tracking of any kind of, you know, common personality traits and things that just didn't exist yet. So what fast was, Oops, sorry. Yeah. No, no, I was gonna say this movie kind of tracks the origins of modern detective work in a way. What fascinates me in uh, watching these true crime documentaries is uh, psychopathy, uh, basically mm. psychopaths. And mm -hmm. to really, uh, people think and a lot of time mix up sociopaths with psychopaths. They're very, right. very similar, but there is a little bit of a slight difference. Uh, Ted Bundy was your classic psychopath slash narcissist. Like yes. the, uh, the point you made when he would be working at the suicide prevention line. I think uh -huh. he did that because he, he felt the power. Yeah, yes. A person right. would call vulnerable on the uh -huh. verge of wanting to commit suicide and just that power that he would probably feed off of to uh -huh. save her life uh, uh -huh. would give him the satisfaction he wanted and he could very easily track that person down and then go kill them without a second thought. If he wanted to, certainly. And, you know, I think part of what he, he, he had a God complex. He wanted to be, to play God. Yeah. One of the things that I gleaned from the, one of the documentaries, I think it was the Ted Bundy tapes where he says, you know, in, the, in that moment where you feel the last bit of breath leaving her lungs I, in that moment and she's staring into my eyes, I knew I was God. Yeah. You know, just so chilling. So in, in, in the movie, there's a kind of like an inner kind of dialogue monologue going on in, Bundy's head played, I think, very, very brilliantly by Chad Michael Murray, who I think is going to surprise a lot of people in this film, just how terrifying he is and creepy. Um, but we kind of use like these inner thoughts, you know, Bundy's having as he's driving around the highways looking for his victims. And and all of those thoughts came from the actual recorded, mm -hmm. you know, statements of Ted Bundy, whether they were police statements or the tapes or what have you. I just drew upon every various kind of source that I could come up with to find the things that he said that gave us some insight into his mentality, his psychology, psychopathy, as you call it. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was, it was that kind of research that really, you know, you, you feel like you're tapping into something really, really dark and, and almost taboo, you know, and, yeah. and I didn't want the movie to have that kind of, Oh, I need to go take a shower feel after we watch it. Mm -hmm. But I did want to make sure that, Bundy was never pre uh, presented or portrayed in a, in a sympathetic yeah. light or as somebody that we should hold up as some kind of like anti-hero. You know, I just looked at him as being a despicable human being. Exactly. And I think, you know, Chad and I had a lot of conversations about that and we both really felt we're on the same page, you know, and like we just have to, we pulled back on some of the dialogue. We pulled back on some of the humanity. You know, there was a scene where he was early on in the movie, he was on the phone with his girlfriend and, acting like a dutiful father. And I know Chad really liked that scene, but I said, you know what? It humanizes him too much, yeah. you know? And and I think that it makes the movie stronger when we don't, when we don't, you know, I, I just didn't want to make a movie about the duality of Ted Bundy. You know, no. I've seen that. And no. I just, I wanted to focus on this, the monstrosity of him. But I keep saying that, but it's, in it's my, really what- In my opinion, the, the duality, the nice part of him was a facade, was an act. Oh, absolutely was no doubt about it. But I think he un understood how to compartmentalize it. He knew how to 
put it in a place where he could be that mm -hmm. when he needed to be. He'd pull it out. Mm -hmm. I don't think he ever felt any real feelings of affection or love. I think that's one of the questions that Berlinger's film, the, the shockingly evil movie, it's like, could this man have felt real love? And my, I don't think so. No. I think it was always just a facade. Yeah. And that's why uh, psychopathy fascinates me because it's the part mm. of the brain that just is doesn't work. The part of the brain right. that makes us feel empathy, sympathy, uh, remorse. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not like these people, and I'm not defending Ted Bundy here. It's not like they do it on purpose. They're born that. I believe they're born that way. I don't think it's something that develops uh, because of their social environment growing up. My opinion is that psychopaths are born and you can call it a mental disability, whatever you want to call it. It's just that mm. part of the brain that allows the rest of us to feel sympathy, remorse, empathy is turned off in, in their right. brains. Now, going mm -hmm. to the casting of this yeah. movie, how hard was it to find your Ted Bundy in Chad? How long did it take you? How difficult was it? I mean, it was a little bit of a process, but remember, we we were the we were attempting to make this movie at the height of the pandemic, when it was you know, basically we were on fire with this pandemic last summer in the summer of 2020, when we were all kind of like living in our bubbles and we're all quarantined and you know nobody was really leaving their house house at that time and and yet you know, the producers behind this like you know we we think that we can do it. And, and fortunately, while I was writing it, we had found the locations and I kind of almost like wrote the script around the locations, which fortunately was a very isolated, um, kind of almost like abandoned college campus out in Pomona, California. Okay. And so fortunately, we already had this location that we knew was already kind of its own kind of quarantine bubble, mm -hmm. <laughs> the way that, it, you know, it just sort of was there. And there was it wasn't like we'd have to interact very much at all with the outside world if we shot the movie there. So, so it was a bit of a safe bet there. But in terms of like casting, it was all done like like this, like Zoom, you know, yeah. and that's how I met Chad initially. And, um, you know, a couple of other actors were suggested. It was just that when I met him and he read the script very quickly and he understood where I was going with this, it just made a lot of sense. And he and the other thing that struck me was that he had played this really interesting kind of disturbed character on um uh oh my gosh uh, uh riverdale okay yeah playing this kind of like bizarre cult leader and the way he just kind of turned you know you could see kind of like a shift in his mindset and i was like that's kind of how Ted bundy was mm -hmm. you know he knew how to like shift yeah like his mind was always kind of in gear and he was always like thinking about the next thing he was going to do to manipulate this person or this situation and the fact that he did that so convincingly i was like and, and the fact that he understood the script just made a lot of sense okay okay uh now you have when people are you know there's some criticism like oh you have to keep casting these good looking and then these roles and i'm like you know what that was never mm -hmm. the point and you know back in the day ted bundy I, I mean maybe the standards of male beauty have shifted over the past you know 30 years but Ted Bundy, I sorry, was considered a pretty good-looking dude back in his day. He Women yeah. had there were fan clubs. They they wrote letters to him when he was on trial, and he made a big spectacle of it because, mm -hmm. like you said, he loved the attention. That's the narcissism. Um, but you know, you know, probably there are some unbecoming pictures of Ted Bundy. But I think overall, you know, I think that I'm just saying women, but I think the press and I think the 
you know, they made him into a superstar. The, the, the common, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think the common perception at that time was like, how could this good-looking, smart guy be this monster? Mm-hmm. You know, I think that was always like kind of a question about him. So it wasn't like I made a conscious choice, like, oh, we need this really good-looking guy. You know, I was like just looking for the best actor, yeah, um, who was willing to inhabit such a dark character and not try to create, you know, some level of sympathy. I mean. A lot of actors, they're like, yeah, but I want to show the other side, you know, and Chad, thankfully, was not interested. He's like, I just let's go dark. Let's go to the the, the devil with this, because that's who this guy was. He was, he was a fucking deranged monster. Absolutely. And so that's that's where we both kind of like mind melded on that. Good. I'm glad that that makes it even more uh, tempting to me to uh, watch it as soon as it comes out. Now, you have done a lot of documentaries in your career. Mm -hmm. This movie is not a documentary. I just want to make that clear to everybody. But did you use any, you know, when you were directing it, did you use any elements that you would use while you were shooting a documentary for Ted Bundy, American Boogeyman? Or did you just completely leave that aspect out? Because this is a true story, uh, unlike Mm -hmm. a lot of other movies that say based on true events and then it's very watered down this is a very true true real story a lot of people died this man was very dangerous did you Mm -hmm. approach this at all from any kind of documentary standpoint i mean sure i did you know i mean we we had very limited time and very limited you know resources to make this movie and then on top of that throw in the fact that it was the first you know covid era independent film to go into production so we had all kinds of just you know challenges you know we're having to wear masks and learning how to work in zones and you know covid testing for the entire casting crew which is not cheap um you know multiple times a week um just to keep everybody safe that was our like before anything else it was we need to keep everybody safe unfortunately we you know and they were watching us like hawks you know these the the guilds and the unions and stuff to see how it would work we were kind of like guinea pigs in a sense on this film but that being said yeah so i kind of had to rely on my documentarian um skill set i guess you would call it Mm -hmm. because like in a documentary so much stuff happens on the fly and i just wanted to be able to capture some of that we're still doing the, your traditional film setups and it's not trying to be a documentary, but I certainly pulled from some of the resources, some of the old news clippings, um, crime scene photographs that you'll see that were actual crime scene photos, you know, not the incredibly gory things, but um, just the faces of the victims. That was another thing that was incredibly important to me is just to show them, to say their names, to be almost an advocate for those girls who lost their lives so horribly yeah. and, unfairly um you know holland roden's character really is kind of their voice and she's the one that keeps reminding like these these are the people that we need to be concerned about they're the ones that i'm doing this where she's kind of fighting for them Mm -hmm. um she gives a voice to the voiceless if you will and so that was an important element for me but yes so in a way the 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 documentary filmmaker side of me (laughs) is there because when you have to do things quickly um, you have to think on your toes. Okay. Uh, now, your name is attached to some very big franchises. Uh, Halloween, mm-hmm. the Amityville uh, franchise. Mm-hmm. 
Let's just uh-huh. talk a little bit about the uh, the Amityville murders. Uh, uh-huh. I loved it. I really loved that movie. And oh, I'm not going to say that for a lot of the Amityville reboots, yeah. remakes that have come along <laughs> right. the way. Or the haunted lamps, yeah, the haunted yeah. dollhouses, and all the things that have come around the pike. And then now they do like the craziest ones. There's like Amityville shark attack. Yeah, yeah. I'm Amityville like, oh, cop. I don't even yeah. know. It's just. But the well, Amityville think, yeah. murders touches on something that surprisingly no prior movie has and that's the actual DeFeo family and mm-hmm. what they went through all the way through what Ronnie DeFeo did at night when he murdered mm-hmm. his family uh what inspired you to tell the DeFeo story and not the Lutz story yeah, you know, I had my talk about the beginning, but my documentary work kind of always seems to kind of pardon the expression, but bleed over. But I had my very first documentary was a a, 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 a retrospective on the Amityville case yeah. back in 2000, so 21 years ago almost. That was my very first attempt at ever making a documentary, and in the process of making that it was it was a two hour. Uh, history's mystery special for the History Channel. It, it aired on Halloween night of 2000. So, but in the process of of making that, I, I connected with and interviewed pretty much everybody who was alive at the time, and many of those people have passed on now. Yeah. Um, who had anything to do with the story, including the Lutzes, including uh, Dr. Hans Holzer, who had investigated the house, uh, Ed and Lorraine Warren, who were yeah. now like household names but weren't at that time. Yeah. Um, just you know, a whole kind of like a who's who list of everybody who had I, ever had actually any the Amityville uh, scenario is really what put Ed and Lorraine on the map. Oh, without a doubt, yeah. without a doubt. But but that being said, so you know, out of that project grew this, you know, personal connection, friendship. Um, nephew uncle kind of relationship with with the now late george lutz who um just became a, a friend like a like a confidant of mine uh and i him and it was not always about business it was more of you know it was a friendship yeah. and a friendship to the extent that when he passed away in 2006 i did the eulogy at his uh service wow. so um so there was a, a, a personal connection to the material um but a few years ago, um, I was approached by a company that was, you know, independently financing films, and they wanted to do something with a haunted house. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, and I said, listen, you know, and the rights to Amityville were kind of tied up with <laughs> my old friends at Dimension Films at the time. Um, that's a whole other story. Well, I can imagine. But, um, In fact, I was going oh my goodness. I actually considered yeah, we have to asking do- you, but I'm like, that would be a whole yeah. one hour show in itself. Yeah, I was going to say that's, that's a yeah, whole other show. Yeah, we'll do that yeah. another time. But, but that being said, um, but I said, what, you know, and I, in this meeting, I said, what hasn't really been told, as you just pointed out, was the story of the DeFeos and what may have happened. Nobody will ever truly know the way that played out that night. But I, I came at that story from like, again, almost like with Bundy, like there's three different things going on. You know, which DeFeo was this, you know, hardened, the spoiled kid was also severely addicted to drugs and he lost his fucking mind mm-hmm. and did what he did. The second part was, you know, there was mafia connections within the family and that maybe that had some kind of, you know, influence over the events that followed that night. Not saying that they did it, but that there might have been some connection yeah. with the money yeah. and then, you know, the that that kind of underworld connection the family had and then the third is that you know maybe the house was haunted mm-hmm. maybe some diabolical influence 
got to him or that maybe through his use of these like psychedelic drugs that he opened a pathway mm -hmm. to something, you know, and maybe there is something about the history of the land and the native burials and there's so much lore behind it. And I just thought, let's bring all of that stuff together and create, a, a, you know, kind of a new version of this. I mean, the story was a little touched on very, very, very loosely in Amityville 2, the possession back in yep. the early 80s. But they didn't use the DeFeo names, no. the name, and and they really took you know a lot of liberties. I you know we took some because you know there's no real definitive answer to how that all happened, as I mentioned. But yeah, that was kind of the genesis of that was was that there was an interest in doing something um, along these lines, and I suggested this story, and and they understood it, and they appreciated that I had a, a vision for it, and so we went off and we made it. We made it very very quickly. I think I wrote it in a month and. You know, by that, maybe it was April when I pitched it. And I think by July, we were shooting that movie. Wow, that, that is pretty quickly in entertainment. It all standards. happened very fast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, and again, like, like Ted Bundy, it was a small budget. And we made it, and I think it was like 13 days. Wow. Uh, yeah. Now, Ronnie DeFeo did a documentary from prison. Uh, Ronnie DeFeo uh, passed away, I believe. Uh, my, he did, yeah, 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 earlier this yeah, year. He yeah, he passed away uh several years ago he did a documentary speaking from prison uh mm -hmm. and he was really kind of open and honest did you watch that um at all you know what the words open and honest don't compute in my mind when you talk about ronnie defeo he was such a product of the of the system at that point he is again i mean maybe sociopath defines him mm -hmm. he had no remorse for what he did he never took responsibility for what he did and he was always pointing the finger at somebody else yeah. and the story changed so many times one day it was his mother one day it was the mob the other day it was his best friend the next day it was his sister you know it's just the story never i mean they talk about how the lutz's story fell apart you yeah. know claiming it was haunted like talk about the story that falls apart it was his so anything that ever came out of his mouth take it with a grain of salt oh, yeah. i just couldn't believe it so when you say open and honest nothing well ever, that, i just goes to show you how manipulative and how good of a liar he is you know for sure that he yes can maybe do... there's a weird ted bundy parallel there i've never <laughs> thought about that but yeah i mean just yeah that manipulation and and i think he used the media to his whatever he felt would be his his benefit he was always just looking for a way that he would get paroled and i think by never admitting to the murders he always no. thought well maybe there's my way out if i don't admit to it then maybe one day i'll get out of here and that's completely the opposite end of the right thinking uh for sure now long island where amityville is it, it is mm -hmm. it's no secret it's it's full of ancient indian burial grounds there's no doubt about Absolutely. that no doubt uh, but why do you think the amityville story okay i get it uh, back then, uh, a son murders his whole family. It's going to be huge news. It's going to be nationwide news. But to this day, 2021, that uh -huh. story is still being revitalized, retold, added yeah. to. What has yeah. kept the Amityville lore alive for 40 plus years? My simple answer is that it's never really been solved from the DeFeo murders where, you know, six people were brutally murdered in their beds, all face down, all in the same position, all fired at almost like a shot at a point blank range yeah. by a high powered hunting rifle in the middle of the night in the small bedroom community. And nobody hears the gunshots, yeah. including any of the victims that even attempted to get out of bed. 
everybody had, you know, this like you go online and you know, there's forums and there's these groups dedicated to this and they all same, you know, everybody claims to know something. No. But the bottom line is the evidence bore out that he was the only killer. And his sister didn't do it. No. Uh, as he might have claimed. Um, they all slept through it. And how did that happen? And and then add on to that this family, you know, this kind of blended family that, that that moves in a year later and they stay for 28 days claiming all of these, you know, horrific things. I think, listen, you look at the book and you look at the movies and all that, and all, it all gets, you know, like a snowball. It all kind of gets, the story grows with each telling yeah. if you look at just the media of it all. But in terms of the family themselves and my knowledge and my personal connection to them, their story didn't change. No. They, and they'll, they would openly tell you it wasn't true. You know, there was no blood coming out of the walls when they fled in the middle of the night. It wasn't as dramatic as the movie made it out to be. Um, certainly not the remake, yeah. but, um, you know, there was something that terrified them enough to give up a house that they had invested the life savings in. They gave that house back to the bank. They didn't want to be responsible for passing it on to another family. So they lost what, you know, money they had invested in it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I think there's some accusation that they didn't have any money to pay the mortgage and they wanted to get out of this thing. That's not true. I mean, I no. actually just even saw the family's bank statements from the time and they had plenty of, you know, cash on hand um it was it wasn't like they couldn't afford the mortgage um but oh i believe something happened well first of all i'm a believer of the paranormal something happened for them to abandon that house in the middle Mm -hmm. of the night and never go back to pick up their stuff right and they just let it all you know they either got sold at auction it was all given away and they just never they wouldn't go back laura didio was an interesting person she was a young news intern at the local news station and she's the one that kind of convinced them to go public with it it had already kind of hit the local newspapers but she was the one that brought the warrens into the case um and organized this kind of, you know, seance that was ended up being televised, but the Lutzes wouldn't go anywhere near it. They wouldn't go into the house. No. In fact, no. she told me that when they went to get the keys, George Lutz like, like, I'll meet you at the pizza place up the road because I'm not going anywhere near that house. Yeah. And even when I first met him, when I went off to do the History Channel shows back in 2000, he said, if you go into that house, I'll never have anything else to do with it. Wow. Now here's so, a now, yeah. I have a question. I don't know. Like people say it's not haunted now, but whatever happened, I think really affected that family. The haunting could not have been. I mean, I, just because it's not there now, it disappeared with them. Uh, for me, that doesn't say that it's never been haunted. That it wasn't right. haunted with them. That's right. For right. me, that That's is right. no proof whatsoever uh, that it was not haunted. Now here's. I've got a question for you. You knew the Lutz sure. family. Uh-huh. Is it true that when they purchased a home, uh, they kept the DeFeo furniture, including the bed frames and stuff? Some of that stuff, like the washer and dryer, there were several, I think, well, three and three and washers and dryers. There's some of the appliances, I think, that went with the house. Um, yeah, some of the bed frames. We're not talking about mattresses or no, no. springs or anything. Like there were, the, the, the parents' bedroom was not theirs. I think the, one of the, the children's beds just the frame, okay. you know, like the big frame itself, but not like actual pieces of furniture where like, this is the mattress that the no, dead girl slept no, in. I think no. that all got, you know, again, like if you go online, you'll see that like, oh, they even slept in the beds where this, you know, I mean, no, that's ridiculous. No, that's something the police would take. And of course, anyway. all of that stuff would have been taken by the police exactly. as evidence, you know, and, and those mattresses, I'm sure, were torn to shreds just to 
get the trajectory of the bullets that went through them. So, yeah, but I think maybe now you look back on it, maybe it was macabre that they even had like the bed frames. Yeah. But this was just stuff being stored in the cellar, from what I understood. You know, it was just like, oh, any of this stuff, just, you know, it's yours. Or, you know, for a couple hundred bucks, you can, yeah. you can have this, 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 and this. It wasn't, and you have to remember, like, they weren't particularly a religious family. They weren't superstitious. The realtor, and it was Edith Evans, she showed them the house. I think they had told it to me. It was like we had looked at like 50 houses at the time. We were just looking for something um, that we could move into. Kathy and George were married. She had three kids from a previous marriage, and they were looking to kind of begin their own life together mm -hmm. as family. And, and Miss Evans, Mrs. Evans took them to the house on Ocean Avenue, and she let them walk through it. And, you know, like you do when you see any house, imagine the possibilities here. Well, it's a beautiful and house. Beautiful um, home. Uh, and I think, you know, when they saw it, they were like, wow, you know, this is something. She's, and she said to them, I'm going to show you how the other half of Amityville works. Mm -hmm. That's how she kind of hooked them. And then when they finished touring the house, she said, well, you need to know that this is the house where a year ago this, this tragedy happened. And, and what I was told is they all as a family sat around, they talked about it, they explained to the kids, and none of them had any misgivings. They were kind of like, well, we can bring our own family to this and our own, you know, it's a do-over. Yeah. And it's not like the, I think in the movie they say houses don't have memories. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I think that was the beginning of it all. And uh, I don't think that, you know, they certainly didn't go in there with any, you know, plan to create a haunted house no. hoax or, no. you know, and I think DeFeo and one of these interviews like, oh, I knew them. I used to drive them around, you know, I mean, come on. I think the Lutz family got really mistreated by the media. And once something like that starts to spiral out of control, right. you have, right. you, you, you have no control. It's out of your hands yep. and the media yep. is going to take it whichever way they want to take it. Well, and especially people had an appetite at that point. You know, it was like we'd just come out of, you know, it was like, you know, the 70s, the mid, early, mid the 70s. Exorcist. Were all, it was the exorcist. It was the omen. And then, I mean, like, it was like the the, the the evil trilogy of terror, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> was, exactly. you know, that you wanted to believe in all. It was like the devil was everywhere back then. And, and I think this just fed into that already existing fascination with, you know, the devil and, yeah. and, you know, on the, and I think what made Amityville so, I don't know, popular was that it was so, it was just your average house. You know, it was, yeah, it had this dark history associated with it, but this, this was, it wasn't like the creepy haunted house on the hill. This was just an average house in a, in a lovely neighborhood that had a whole lot of things going for it. And yet, you know, here's this average American family that moves into it and holy shit, Everything you know, falls can't stay apart. here. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think, you know, just, it speaks to a lot of things. Um, now, Stephen, uh, Stephen King wrote about it. Yeah. Uh, where he was saying that, and, and he was really talking more about the movie, but how it kind of, it was, it was really kind of a metaphor for the, the fracturing of the American dream and, and that this house represented that and, and all of the things that were, were collapsing around, you know, American culture at that time, the norms. So, That's I mean, you can look at it from that perspective as well. But, but yeah, I think it was just one of those things that hit the zeitgeist at the right time. For the family, maybe not so much. But, you know, one thing they always told me was we made the decision to go public. We made the decision to authorize the book. We made the decision to let them make a movie of it. So we can't blame them completely. Like, mm -hmm. they, didn't, they didn't look at themselves as like, well, we're just victims of the media. You're like, yeah, I mean, I think that they didn't anticipate no. <laughs> what was coming, um, the kind of like tidal wave that, that followed them. But they took ownership um, of their part. 
They did. Yeah. And, and, and I think, you know, George Wood spent the last couple of years of his life, you know, kind of lecturing on the college circuit, um, just talking to people about his experience and, and always saying, you know, at the top, he'd do a slideshow and he would say, you know, I'm not here to convince of anything. I'm just here to tell you my testimony. This is my experience. This is what happened. And you can believe or not believe. I'm not here to try to change your mind. Yeah. You know, so he really, and, but it was interesting how so many people would approach him after his lectures about stories, things that had happened in their homes mm -hmm. during their childhoods. And it, I think he felt, I don't know. I, I think there's something to be said by people who experience a, a similar, you know, a trauma or an unexplained something like that. You know, I think people, bond over things yeah. like that and, and it's maybe an there unusual is a experience and yeah. if it's shared by someone it's going to bring people together it's a shared right experience that's not very common now the time that mm -hmm. we have left i want to yeah. talk about another huge franchise that you've been a part mm -hmm. of and that's of course <laughs> the halloween franchise oh, you, gosh. of course you wrote uh halloween the curse of michael myers uh yep. great movie again uh, it was part, you know, before it splintered into H2O, and then it started going different directions. It was all these different alternate timelines. Exactly. Exist, right? Uh, right. The wow. Curse of Michael Myers, which I believe is Halloween number five. Six. six. Nope, it's six, six. actually. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Uh, how did you get involved uh, with that, first of all? Gosh, I mean, it's such a long story, but I'll try to summarize it as quickly as I can. But I was I was just a fan. You know, I was like a huge Halloween fan. I grew up loving. It wasn't really so much a series at that point. <laughs> it was like there was one and two. Um, and I just I made a declaration after I saw weirdly enough, after I saw Halloween five and I said to the friends that I saw the film with that I was going to write Halloween six. How I was going to do that? I had no idea. I didn't know the producers. I had had no produced film credits um, at that point. So I really just kind of figured out a way to approach Mustafa Akkad, uh, God rest his soul, mm -hmm. um, who was the executive producer and the kind of the, you know, the elder statesman, the, the, the granddaddy of Halloween at that point, which kind of held the rights to the whole series. And I found his, an address for his production company. I wrote a letter. Um, one of the people at his company named man by the name of Ramsey Thomas. He was one of the producers of, of Halloween five read the letter and he said, great, you know, we're looking for writers for the next movie, send me a sample. So I wrote, I had, you know, I had a bunch of scripts I'd written, never sold, not Halloween scripts, um, just for original things mm -hmm. that I'd written. I picked what I thought was the best of the bunch and sent it off to Ramsey thinking I'd never hear anything. And he called me a couple weeks later saying, Mustafa would like to meet you because we liked your script. And holy shit, you know, yeah. I was 19 years old at that time. Wow. I was 19. And so to me, I was like, holy shit. Yeah, <laughs> holy shit. Um, you know, and I went and I, and I'll never forget, you know, it's like, it's like what you would think. It's like you walk into this office on Sunset Boulevard and, and then, and I walk into the smoky office where there was this, you know, to me, this like, it was like being asked to summon to the principal's office yeah. and it was Mustafa with his, with his pipe and his mouth and all the Halloween posters on the wall behind him. And, and I just sat there almost like frozen in terror. And I think the meeting lasted all of 10 minutes. And I think he was just kind of, maybe he just wanted to meet me because he was like, who's this kid, you know? <laughs> like, who, you're like, I think it was maybe I'm more curious. <laughs> and we had this very brief interaction and he was very polite, but 
was kind of like, thanks for coming in. And I'm like, fuck. And four years later, my phone rang. Four years. And it was his office. Mm -hmm. And they wanted to meet me. And the series for four years had gone through all kinds of legal wranglings. And there were fights among all the business partners, and including John Carpenter, Deborah Hill. And they wanted to make the movie somewhere else. And he he had the, it was a big knot of legal. It was mess. a clusterfuck. It was a clusterfuck. Yeah. So that being said, the rights ended up back with Mustafa, and he had made a deal to do the film, the six, with uh, this new upstart studio called Merrimax, then this, this new, new, new kind of like banner they created called Dimension Films mm -hmm. with, with Bob Weinstein. And uh, I was brought in again, and uh, I pitched what I thought was an idea for the movie, and, and, um, and lo and behold, they hired me to write it. And at that point, I was 24. Wow, uh, that is that. I mean, at tw at nineteen, first of all, to be brought in to meet these people for the Halloween yeah. franchise to write the right? screenplay at twenty four is almost unbelievable. I know, uh, you know, I know, I know. I think I didn't know how young I was. It's a good thing I didn't because I think I would have been like today. I would be, I never attempt such a thing. <laughs> I think I was young enough to be naive enough to think that that's how it's done. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Now, so it's sometimes it's like what you don't know can't hurt you. <laughs> exactly, ignorance is bliss. Now, uh, you you do have producer credits in the film as well, do you not? Not on Halloween, but I went on to produce a few films. Uh, I, I produced a movie that was pretty successful called The Haunting in Connecticut. Oh my God, um, that's another movie I love. Oh, thank you. Yeah, we, we you know that was a long road to get that made, but um, you know it, it turned out great, and you know I think the movie you know it's kind of like a, a little mini classic in its own genre. You know, speaking of that, and, uh, you know, you sort of kind of see a pattern with the Amityville and the Haunting in mm -hmm. Connecticut, which is uh, mm -hmm. based on another true story. Uh, right. I've seen documentaries with the real family. There is a sequel to A Haunting in Connecticut. Uh, well, don't get me started on that one. <laughs> uh, yeah, which takes place in Georgia. But, yeah, right. Yeah, but, that's uh, a whole, talk about a legal mess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know... Uh, you see a pattern here where you really like to take uh, now with Ted Bundy. Yeah, uh, mm -hmm. it seems that you really have a passion for telling true stories and trying to stay as faithful and as accurate to the real story as possible. Well, sure. Yeah, I mean, yes. I, for me, the truth is always more terrifying than fiction. You know, there's it's there's no there's no accident that I call the movie American Boogeyman. I mean, yeah. there's something. There's a parallel there to Halloween, you know, mm -hmm. that Ted Bundy was arrested and, you know, in, in early 1978 when they were making the original Halloween, wow. you know, and I do wonder, and I've never asked him this question, but I do wonder if John and Deborah were somehow, maybe even if almost subliminally inspired by Bundy when they created Michael Myers, that's you know, that kind of phantom that's roaming around and killing hapless girls you know i think there was you know that was all on the news at the time it was all kind of what everybody was talking about so maybe i mean again i don't think there was any direct connection but i think maybe we're always kind of informed like my work is always informed and i think most artists would say their work is informed by what what we're hearing what we know what's in the culture um but these were the stories that really really on like a primal level really terrified me as a kid yeah you know? Manson murders to you know onward to you know Ted Bundy and and then these haunted house stories. I mean, I remember the Amityville Horror, the novel, the book, mm -hmm. the Jay Anson book. I remember we were in, in, in the schoolyard, we'd be like all gather around at recess and like 
read another chapter out loud to each other. <laughs> and then there were flies, you know. <laughs> so, I mean, these were stories that and voices saying are, get out. Right, yeah. right. It was just these were the things that kind of informed my childhood, my experience, maybe, you know, kind of probably were haunting the back of my brain somewhere. So to be able to kind of revisit them and, and sometimes somewhat it feels like it's cathartic in a way, like you're telling the story in a way that now it's not as scary as it was because you were giving it your own voice. It's your own mm -hmm. perception of that story being put forth. And, you know, some people are offended by it. I think we live in a culture where it's like anything you do, people are going to take a stand. It's like, I, I'm not comfortable with that, or that's problematic for me. These were real people. I'm like, of course they were real people. Of course they were. And we should remember them. Mm -hmm. that we absolutely should remember them. We should remember Sharon Tate. We should remember the victims of Ted Bundy. Those are the names that I hope resonate with people. Yeah. I don't glorify Charles Manson. I don't glorify Ted Bundy. I have no anything in my heart but contempt and, and disgust for what they did. Yeah. Um, but people just want to think what they want to think. Exactly. People like to make their own stories up and fill in the blanks with their version. Well, and they decide like the kind of person you are. They want to ascribe some like sit on some moral soapbox, yeah. you know, like you know, thinking that I'm this like deviant, <laughs> whatever. I'm like, wow, like if they knew me in real life, you know, just what like I said in the beginning, like what a chicken shit I really am. Yeah. Uh, when it comes to these things, and I think you know, part of what we all do collectively, like we. Maybe it's just something we do as writers or filmmakers or what have you. I think we take those childhood fears and we find an outlet for them somehow. I, I've never gone out of my way to try to, you know, upset people or or defame the families of victims or anything. If anything, I, I pay tribute to them, you know, in these films and show that they were real people with real lives, with faults, with with, uh, you know, with dreams and ambitions. And again, like in the case of the new movie, you know, that there was a there was a young detective out there who who fought for them, who gave them a voice, who who tracked down this insidious man and, and brought him, helped to bring him to justice. There yeah. were a lot of people behind that. But yeah, I think those are the things that are important to me. You know, there is dark, but there's also light. And I think that those are things, those contrasts that, that that's what storytelling is all about. Do you credit? So, I mean, yeah. uh, I'm sorry. Do you credit Halloween uh, Six as being the big uh, thing in your career that propelled your career at such a it young age? It gave me a career. Oh my God! I mean, without that movie, I you know maybe I would have never gotten a, a chance. I think you know it's funny. I met Deborah Hill back in those days. Deborah Hill. Yeah. Um, who was just very kind to me, and when I was hired to do the movie, even though she wasn't directly involved, she she spoke with me at length, and she's like, you know what? What I think is great about these sequels, you know, even though it's maybe not the way we would approach them, but, uh, you know, that it gives new people a chance. Yeah. It gives everybody, you know, people who have maybe not been discovered yet or had their work shown or, or been given a job to kind of show their talent. And she goes, that's why I think that the franchise lives on and it should live on. And I hope you do a great job with it so that they can make seven, eight, nine. And of course, now they have done on. Exactly. So, um, Did you but, get a uh, chance yeah. to meet and talk with John Carpenter at all? Uh -huh. Yeah, a couple times. And uh, no, he's, he's always he's always been very, you know, I think until recently. And now he came back, you know, to the, to the fold. And I think Malik Akkad had a, a big hand in, in bringing him back in. Yeah. Um, but, you know, John was always very blasé about the sequels. You know, I think he just was like, uh, you know, it's another paycheck for me. I don't care. <laughs> well, you know, the story goes, he did not. He when he did Halloween in 78, 
he wanted it to be an anthology uh, series. That's right. Yeah. He sure did. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a cool idea. I mean, I think Halloween 3 gets a bad rap, but I think, you know, it's like that movie was like kind of a, bad, a victim of bad marketing, bad timing. You take away the Halloween title, it's a good movie. Well, even if you just took away the three, yeah. you know, three connotes a, a continuation of two. So I think in the fact that it was just one year after yeah. Halloween 2, mm -hmm. I think we all went in. I mean, I'm speaking from my 13 year old self here. Yeah. We all went into that movie thinking, oh, my God, you know, he didn't burn up in the hospital. No, yeah, <laughs> and I had nothing How's he going to get his eyeballs back? We didn't get that until Halloween 4. Mm -hmm. But, you know, 3 was really an experiment to try to take the whole thing in a new direction of a series of Halloween-based stories that would be told annually. And I think that was – it just didn't work because the timing was bad, the marketing was bad. The movie's not bad, though. It's just no. – it's not a Halloween sequel. And I think that, you know, that disappointed a lot did. of that's people. What they didn't, yeah, that's what they didn't realize at the time that people just wanted more and more and more and more Michael Myers. And when we did six, like people were like, there's going to be six of these movies. What the hell? You know, people couldn't believe that we we're going to make another one. Yeah. And now, you know, and it's just been going. And now the series going. is now it's big, bigger than it's ever been. And I think that's, you know, I think Halloween 2018 just. I don't know, reinvigorated this franchise uh, by, yeah, yeah. you know, Carpenter played a role in it. And they basically, Carpenter said, forget every Halloween after the original. This right. is the sequel. How does that make yes. you feel? Um, you know, I don't take any of it personally. I just, you know, it's it's a different timeline. Um, what I, what I kind of disagree with, though, is the whole notion of, like, that she's just not the sister anymore. It's yeah. like, come on. Like, I feel like, like, when I try to, like, pull the wool over our eyes. Yeah. I mean, for those of us who, you know, invested so much of our, you know, devotion to the franchise over the years, and me just speaking as a fan, not as one of the mm -hmm. storytellers, but, you know, come on. Yeah. She's the sister. Yeah, I mean... And that's... You, did, you didn't need to take that away, because, I mean, honestly, it's the same thing. They did... If if they had her, the sister, in the last movie, yeah. it wouldn't have changed the story. In fact, yeah. it might have made it a little stronger, because now it's about generations. Yeah. It's about the daughter, the granddaughter, and that bid for survival that they all have. I think by taking it out, it actually kind of diminished it. And that... Because, like, well, what, what's, he, what's, he, what's he going there? Yeah, exactly. And when they took it out, you as a viewer left, okay... So if it's not his sister, what the hell did uh, Laurie Strode invoke in Michael Myers for right. to be his main person to go after? What was it? Yeah. Just because I, I mean, what she like, dropped think, off the keys yeah. at the house? That's it? Right, right. And I think that was the randomness. And I understood that's what the first movie was about. But it did develop from there. And we all sat for... I mean, even Jamie Lee came back for H2O. And I mean, it was always... I was his sister and he was my brother and he killed our other sister. You know, like yeah. there's these long speeches and scenes where she kind of delves into the mythology of all of it. And, and to just sort of say that didn't happen, yeah. is kind of like a bit of a slap in the face. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, no, I totally I see your I point think, of I view. I think that was like kind of, I think that was playing a little unfair with the loyal audience. I mean, I understood in a way the reason to like, well, what if there weren't sequels and what if it was this, it's a, like Halloween has become like, well, choose your own adventure. Yeah. You know? Which timeline do you choose to follow? H2O is completely so. different from, you know, the 2018. Right, where we left off. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, yeah. even with six, you know, they that's the first one where they diverted the timeline back yeah. into something, you know, it was like, that was like a sequel to two. Yeah. You yeah. know, as opposed to, so they kind of carved 
four, five, and six out into its own timeline. And, you know, even it's just all confusing. It so is. I think in a way for economy and I think for just to to draw the largest audience so that you're not confusing, like, well, what? what? Do I have to go back and watch all these movies? I think they just wanted to kind of consolidate. Yeah, and also, Daniel, in my opinion, the movie that's coming out next year, Halloween Ends, Mm -hmm. there's not a single being in my fiber that that I believe that's going to be the last Halloween movie. Oh, yeah, that's right. (laughs) Don't believe that. Just like Friday the 13th Part 4, the final chapter. Yeah, the Halloween Ends is the final final chapter of the series. No, not going to happen. Daniel, this has been fascinating, man. Uh, I've loved this hour and talking to you thank, thank you. you so much now the movie guys is called ted bundy american boogeyman it's coming out friday september 3rd uh to all popular video on demand streaming surface uh, services daniel that's right that's and right. dvd yep so check it out um uh, i haven't seen it but i'm sure it's great i'm going to be checking it out so definitely Amer- again ted bundy american boogeyman Written, directed, produced by our guest tonight, Daniel Ferrans. Daniel, again, thank you so much. I want to thank our audience. Any final thoughts you want to share? Guys, thank you. No, thank John, thank you. And, and thanks to everybody who, you know, has supported me and, and certainly the fans of Halloween that, you know, have kind of, again, given me a career that I, you know, don't take for granted. And, and, and secondly, just everybody take care of each other. It's a crazy time we're living in and yeah. and uh, be good to one another you've had a blessed great career and it's been an honor yeah. uh thank you everybody for tuning in uh just a little scheduling note we are our next episode is going to be one week from today we are attending new jersey horror fest this weekend we'll be bringing to you some uh, good footage so we'll be back on the air a week from today on uh tuesday the 7th i believe so everyone stay safe take care and we'll be talking to you soon and stay walking. Good night.